All right, where are all the kids at this morning? Can you guys raise your hands up? All right, put your hands back down. All right, raise your hand if your parents ever let you have dessert. Raise, put your hands down. Raise your hands if your parents ever let you have dessert that has like a whole lot of sugar in it. All right, put your hands down. Raise your hands if your parents have ever let you stay up late, like past your bedtime. All right, put your hands down. Okay, now, let's say that tonight, your parents decide they're going to let you stay up late, and they're going to give you a dessert that has more sugar in it than anything you've ever had before. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? Okay, now, let's say that happens. They let you stay up late. They give you lots of sugar. And then tomorrow, you cause all kinds of problems. You disobey. You're rude. You're mean. You aren't the little kid that you're supposed to be. Do you think tomorrow night, your parents are going to give you more dessert and let you stay up late again? Who says yes? They'll give me more dessert. They'll let me stay up late again. Who says no? Who says that my bad behavior means that my parents are probably not going to let me stay up late and probably not going to let me have more dessert? All right, I agree with all of you guys. As a parent, right, if we gave our kids a bunch of sugar and let them stay up late and the next day they're kind of crazy, we would say something like, well, if you can't handle staying up late and you can't handle your sugar, it's going to be a little while before you get to do that again. And the reason why I bring this up is because in our passage today, there's a part where we talk about stewardship. And one of the things that Jesus says is he says that if we are faithful with a little, we'll be entrusted with more. And so just like when your parents give you good things and let you do something like stay up late, if you the next day are well-rested and a good kid, they're more likely to let you stay up late again in the future because you've shown that you can stay up late and still be a responsible great kid. They'll let you do that again in the future. In the same way, God trusts us with, with things that he's given to us. He gives us resources. He gives us uh, money. He gives us our homes. He gives us our jobs. He gives us our, our life. He gives us our kids. He gives us everything. Every good and perfect gift comes to us from our Father in heaven. Uh, and when he trusts us with stuff, if we are good stewards of it, he will entrust us with more. And that's one of the things that we see in our passage uh, today, this morning. So kids, I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents to tell you more about what they learned about stewardship Uh, And then ask them about that special dessert that you're supposed to get tonight uh, and that late bedtime. I'm just kidding. Don't don't ask them about that. All right, let's let's pray together, and then we will get into our passage together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, um, for for all of the passages in it. The passages. We love and the passages we don't love as much, the passages that, that excite us uh, and, and, and thrill us with who you are and, and how you reveal our, yourself to us, and, and also the passages that are, that are difficult for us to understand. God, we pray that you would uh, cultivate in us by your Spirit a love for your Word, uh, because in it we know more about who you are and what you've done for us, and we know more about who we are and how we should respond to you and your grace to us. God, we pray that you would uh, meet with us this morning as we continue in worship together, as we, we strive to learn together from your word and benefit from it uh, and be encouraged and challenged uh, by it this morning. 
Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you, you left heaven to come here to, to redeem us, to save us, to, to begin the process of restoring your creation that had been broken by us and by our sin. And we thank you that you, while you were here, uh, you taught and, and made disciples and lived life, and we can read about that in the Gospel of Luke together this morning. We pray that you would help us, uh, that you would send your Spirit uh, to help us to understand the, this parable this morning and this passage together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 of Luke chapter 16. Um, last week, we've, we kind of finished up the three parables in Luke 15, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of uh, the, the two sons. And... Uh, Really, for me, like those are those are some of my uh, favorite passages in the Gospel of Luke. Just th- those three parables, Luke chapter fifteen. Like, if if I could pick, if I had to pick like a chapter in Luke that I'm just going to read again and again and again, it would be Luke fifteen for me. Uh, it it certainly would not be Luke chapter sixteen. Uh, to me, Luke 15 are these these great parables that put God's love on display, uh, and and uh, they just kind of move me towards worshiping and praising God for who he is and what he's done for me. And then Luke 16 just brings back down to earth because uh, this, is, this is one of the, the toughest passages. Uh, it's kind of, there's a couple parts of it that just have a whole lot of debate surrounding it. And so as we go this this morning, you're going you're gonna to see that. Uh, but I hope that we also see that even passages that are tougher and, and not as great as maybe the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost coin, that we can still learn more about who God is and, and what he wants from us as his people. We can still celebrate God in the passages that are tough just as well as we can in the passages that are easy for us to understand. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 uh, of Luke 16 this morning. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people By one, he said to the first, How much do you, you owe my master? He said, About a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So in this passage today, we kind of get these these three separate chunks, and they're kind of all at least loosely connected by the idea of money. Uh, There's the parable of this dishonest manager. Uh, There's this section in the middle kind of about stewardship. And then there's the Pharisees who get mad at him because they're lovers of money. And Jesus kind of in response to them teaches about the kingdom of God and kind of its relation to the Old Testament. So we get this first, this parable of the dishonest manager. And as I said, it kind of has a a pretty uh, hard-to-interpret section in it that you'll see as we go through it. And so there's this rich man, Jesus says, that has a guy who manages his possession. So he has all this stuff, and because he has all this stuff, he needs to hire somebody to manage all of his stuff. So he hires this manager, but then these charges are brought against the manager. We don't know what kind of the charges were, what, what they were accusing him of, but the rich man calls the manager in. He knows about the charges, and so he says he's going to fire this guy. He can't be manager anymore. And so he asks the manager to bring him an account of his management. What he's asking for is kind of the, the books. He's asking for his record-keeping, uh, his ledger, so he can know kind of how to pass things off to a new manager. And so the, the old manager who's getting fired kind of freaks out, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm too frail to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to be out of this house? I'm going to have to find something to do. And so he hatches a plan. He comes up with a scheme to where he's going to bring in his master's debtors and he's going to do something for them so that they will like him, so that he can curry favor with them, so that once the master kind of kicks him out of the house and fires him, he'll have a place to go. There will be people out in the community who like him because he knows he's not getting a good recommendation from his former boss because he's getting fired. And so he's trying to curry favor for himself with others. So the first guy he calls in uh, owes a hundred measures of oil. That's 875 gallons of oil. And it's probably olive oil. And so if you think about how much olive oil is at Walmart, this is a lot of money that he owes. And the manager hears this out and he says, quickly sit down and write 50 uh, measures. So he cuts that debt in half. Calls in another guy. The other guy owes a hundred measures of wheat. Uh, that's about uh, 1,000 to 1,200 bushels, uh, whatever a bushel is. And this guy owes lots of bushels. And he says, you know, change that 100 to 80. So he reduces his debt as well. This is his plan to make people like him so that when he leaves his master's house, he'll have a place to go. There will be people out in the community that will receive him and welcome him because he has just done a great thing for them. Then we get to verse 8. It's commended the dishonest shrewdness. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now here is where there's kind of passage. And the question is, is like why why is the master, the rich man, why is he complimenting, commending this dishonest manager who's just kind of stole from him? And so the question is is, is what he's doing ethical or unethical? Like, is he doing it morally? Is what he's doing, is he's reducing these debts, is it ethical or unethical? Is it morally good or is it morally bad? And there's, there's three options here. 
Option one is that this dishonest manager, as he's reducing these debts, what he's really doing is he's taking his commission, kind of the part of the debt that he would have got, and he's removing it. So he's, he's taking what they owed him, and he's just kind of erasing that part of it. They still owe his master, but they don't owe him anymore. And that's kind of one option that people throw out. And so in doing that, what he's doing is he's kind of hurting his own financial prospects to make people like him. Well, that's uh, not the people of God, non-Christians, non-followers of Jesus. These people, Jesus things. And so when he says, uh, make means or make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, I think what he's saying is that we should uh, make friends. We should uh, curry favor with people. And it's going to be a specific person. We'll see that means of, of worldly possessions. We should use what God has given us on this earth to, uh, to help others, to, to curry favor with other people. And then he's going to explain who we should do this with, right? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So who is it that determines whether or not we get into eternal dwellings? To, to make friends with those that can receive us into the eternal dwellings, I think what Jesus is telling us to do in response to this parable is he's telling us to be more shrewd, uh, be shrewd like this dishonest manager, like the sons of this world, to have a shrewdness like them so that we use our possessions in a way that is clever, in a way that is shrewd, in a way that is wise, so that we please God with what we do with our possessions, with what he's entrusted us with. Uh, it's not about us just getting people to like us. It's about us serving him with what he's entrusted us with. We're called to be like the dis- Telling us to be good stewards of what God has given us so that we please him with how we conduct ourselves with a shrewdness uh, for our possessions. So that, I think, is what the parable of the dishonest manger is telling us to do. That's why Jesus tells this, this strange parable that has this strange commendation. Dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So whether people have a lot or whether people have a little, how they handle it shows how they would handle it if they have more. And so if you've always wondered, you know, like, what, what, what would my life be like if I was rich? Uh, you would probably handle your finances very similar to how you do now. Like if you're a bad steward now, you'll be a bad steward with a lot. Uh, if you're a good steward with a little, you'll be a good steward with a lot. That does not mean... That if we're a good steward with a little, God's going to give us more. Right? He's not saying that here. 
He unpacks it more in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is worldly wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And the assumed answer to this question is, is no one, right? If we're not faithful, if we're not good stewards of things that don't matter as much, why would God entrust us with things that do actually matter? Verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in that which is another, if we haven't cared for other people's stuff well, why would we get our own? Um, and really, this, this verse is kind of tricky because everything we have isn't our own, right? It's all been given to us by God. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We can't serve two masters. We'll end up being unfaithful to one or the other. We'll end up loving one and hating the other. We'll end up being devoted to one and not devoted to the other. We can't serve God and money. And I think that none of us would ever say, right, that we serve money. Especially when faced with that, with that choice, right? Do we serve God or do we serve money? Every single time, if we're asked that question, we're going to say we serve God. But often, in Scripture, we see the idea of service, of serving God, bound up with the idea of worship. And I feel if we begin to think about what Jesus is saying here more in terms of worship rather than service and and mastering, it helps us to understand that we actually do struggle with this tension. right? Because we, we, we would not acknowledge that money is our master. But I think there are times where, where money or the things that money can give us, like, you know, financial security or a, a shiny new iPhone 12 or that perfect Christmas present for our kids, we begin to think if we can just have that thing, then it will make our life better. It will make this year easier. It will make us prepared for the future. It will do something for us that it was not designed to do for us. And in those moments, what's happening is we are giving our allegiance in our worship and our affections to something that is not God. We are serving another master. We are worshiping money instead of God. Because what we're doing is we're elevating it to the status of an idol. We might not use that language. We might not think about it in that way. But that's what's happening in our heart. We are offering ourselves in worship, in service to something other than God. And Jesus says that that is not an option. We can't serve God and serve something else. He is the one that we serve. We serve him and nothing else. Now don't hear that and think that, you know, we only serve God, right? We don't, we don't serve our, our families. We don't serve our spouse. We don't serve our jobs. If we're just serving God, that's all we're focused on. We're not focused on anything else. That's, that's not what this is saying. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. If we have our hearts rightly aligned to God, and if he is truly our master, then all of those other things, all those other relationships, all those other responsibilities that we have will go better. We will, if we're trying to serve God by serving our spouse, we will actually serve our spouse well. If we're trying to parent our kids by following God and worshiping him above all else, we will parent our kids the best way in those moments. Doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean that we're going to be flawless. But it means if we're trying to love God by loving our kids, we will love our kids more than if we're trying to love our kids by making ourselves bigger, making ourselves look better, making ourselves the, the perfect parent. 
If it's about us, we will fail. But if we make it about God, uh, he will be glorified and our kids will learn to love him more than they learn to love us. We cannot serve two masters. This next little chunk here at the very end is Jesus responding to the Pharisees. Luke says in verse 14 that they were lovers of money. And so they hear Jesus uh, teaching about this on his way to Jerusalem, and they're, they're frustrated, right? Because they don't want their hearts confronted with the truth of God's word. They're happy in their little religious system that they've created for themselves. And so when Jesus says things like, you can't serve God and money, they get bothered by that. And he says they began to ridicule him. And so he calls them out. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Uh, Jesus sees past their self-assessment of themselves to who they really are on the inside. He knows that even though the outside of that cup is clean, inside it's not. He knows who they are. He knows that they're serving money instead of serving God. He knows that they've created this man-made system of religion for themselves and that that's what they're serving rather than God. And all of these things, he says, are an abomination in the sight of God. For the Pharisees, their self-righteousness is shown to be no righteousness at all. So he explains what the law and the prophets really are about. He says the law and the prophets were until John. God had revealed himself primarily through the law and the prophets until John the Baptist came and started preaching. But since then, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom is preached. So the law and the prophets existed as God's revelation to his people until John the Baptist came along. And when he sent him to prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the way for Jesus, the gospel began to be preached that the king was coming into the world to bring God's kingdom down here. The good news of the gospel is being preached and that is what God's people should be devoting themselves to now. And then he says, and everyone forces his way into it. That's into the kingdom of God. And that's a really weird phrase. Everybody forces their way into the kingdom of God. This word force, uh, it often has the the meaning of of violent force. In fact, in Matthew 11, that's how it's translated. It's translated as as a violent action. And so it's weird to think about Jesus saying, everybody forces their way into the kingdom violently. Um, That's generally not a way we think about conversion. It's generally not a way we think about people coming to Christ, right? We enter the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Jesus. Um, But doing so, placing our faith in Jesus, trusting in him, uh, it is for us an act of self-denial. It's an act of repentance. It's us... uh, kind of going against our own natural inclinations, our own natural will. And so I think that when Jesus is saying that everybody enters the kingdom by force, uh, by some violent force, he's not saying that, like, that we're like fighting against the will of God into the kingdom, that we're somehow like going against him and, and, and getting in. He's saying that we're going against ourselves as we're entering the kingdom. Um, and if you think... Uh, conversion kind of is a violent thing, theologically speaking, right? Uh, When we're converted, we kind of kill our old self. 
Paul says he was crucified with Christ. It's no longer him that lives, but Christ lives in him. Uh, we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new, not, new life. The old has passed away. The new has come. We put off the old self and put on the new self. There is a dramatic change that happens in us at conversion as we kind of violently throw off our old life and force our way into a new one in his kingdom as his followers, as his people, as citizens of his kingdom. That's not something that we do in our own power or our own strength. It's something we do by his grace through faith as he makes us new. He does that transforming work in us. He causes us to be born again. But we, uh, through him, through his grace, by faith, force our way into his kingdom. We uh, die to ourselves and get born again in him. Last, Jesus says, that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Uh, the word of God, the, the law, the Old Testament, it's not going to pass away. It's not going to be done away with. It's not going to become null and void. It's going to become fulfilled in Jesus and transformed by his teaching. And it will never pass away. He says it'd be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for it to pass away. And that should give us confidence because we know that God's word will remain. His promises are true and will stand forever. It's not just going to disappear or be done away with. It's going to be upheld and fulfilled in Jesus. God keeps his promises. And they're not just going to pass away. And so as we think about this passage this morning and how to respond to it, right? We've got this kind of push towards being good stewards with what God has given us, not so that we can build our own kingdoms, but so that we can build his kingdom on the earth. We have this push to, to represent ourselves well by how we manage our possessions so that we're pleasing God. We have this push towards not masters, but recognizing that we're, we can only love the thing that we're called to love is God. The one thing we're called to worship is God. The one thing we're called to serve is God. And then we have this reminder at the end that uh, we enter the kingdom forcefully as we push off our old life and receive our new life in Jesus. And that God's promises aren't going to pass away. They're not going to be So it's my hope that that even this kind of strange passage uh, will be encouraging to you this morning. Uh, we don't need to overcomplicate things. Uh, most of the time, as we read through even a tricky passage like this, the, the clear, plain sense of God's word is, is what he's saying to us. And I think we try to make it more complicated God wants us to learn from his word. He wants to reveal himself to us in his word. He wants us to be in our affections through his word. And thankfully, graciously, it's going to stand forever. It's not just going to disappear from the face of the earth. So it's my hope that you were encouraged by this and it encourages you to press further into the word, uh, knowing that even sticky passages are...
Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and that you reveal yourself to us. You sent your spirit to, to help us to understand it. And we pray that you would uh, help us to be good stewards, not just into it and benefit from it, that we would be faithful with what you've entrusted to us in your word. Um, pray that you you've given us that we would use the come null and void, but that it is upheld and fulfilled in Jesus, that all